I, I don't know if I want to make you guys stop. You guys seem to really be enjoying each other this morning. Um, and I don't know if I, I really, I don't know if I want to get in the way of that, but I will because we've got more that we need to do. Now, why don't you take a seat? Um, we are going to start with our time of corporate prayer. And we don't always do this, but I would say the majority of times we do. We, we basically stop and reflect on um, what the text is going to be challenging us on, and then we ask God to prepare us in that way. And so the text this morning is going to say, do you realize that you are part of the body of Christ? Do you realize that we together are the body of Christ? And then do we live that way? Do we live remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus did? Do we live like that when we worship together? Do we live like that when we gather around the Lord's table? Do we live like that when we leave? And so that's going to be our challenge this morning. And so um, I would like for you to join with me in a prayer where we go to God believing that he hears us and believing that he actually changes our hearts that he opens our hearts, that he opens our minds, and that he moves us to a place where transformation really can take place. Do you believe that? That God does that? I believe he does that. And so that's what we are about to do. So let us go to him. God, we thank you for being here this morning. And even that statement seems, seems silly. For where could you not be? But God, we are speaking in terms of uh, an openness that we desire to have for you. And so Father, you being here this morning um, reveals a truth about yourself, um, your desire to draw near to us and for us to draw near to you. And I pray, Father, that as we gather today as the body of Christ here, um, that the name Sunnybrook um, would literally just kind of melt away and that we would just recognize that we are part of um, the human race made in your creation, uh, made in your image, made for your glory. Uh, Father, we are um, not just human, but we are called out. We have been now remade in the image of Christ. And may we, may we think about that, ponder that, may we reflect on that, and may we eat and drink in light of that. May we sing in light of that. May we... Um, mix and mingle. May we open up our hearts and our lives and our homes for that reason. Um, for God, you have made us relational like you are. And you have um, redeemed our brokenness. And Father, you've given us a way to live other than selfish, other than individualistic. You've taught us through Jesus and therefore, today, as we sit under your teaching, as we sit under your text, as your spirit lives in us and pulls us towards you, may we do so joyfully and willingly. So, Father, conform our minds to think like you. Conform our hearts to feel like you. Conform our hands and feet to do what you've called us to do. And may you receive glory. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, what I would like for you to do is to turn your attention to the slides or to the screens as we prepare for our text for this morning by hearing how we got here and what we need to be thinking about. Order, distinction from the world, unity. All these should be natural outcomes when God's people gather for worship. In the first part of chapter 11, Paul commends the Corinthian church for how they maintained their traditions he gave them. 
And Paul's main concern is that the Corinthians properly respond to God's design for order and responsibility in the church. He wants them to simultaneously have unity while also recognizing the God-ordained distinctions between man and woman. This week, in the second half of chapter 11, Paul makes no such commendations. Instead of building the body up, the foolish Corinthians found a way to make matters worse when they gathered for worship. Specifically, they've taken one of the most distinctly Christian rituals, the Lord's Supper or Communion, and they've turned it into a cause for stumbling and division. So if you go back and you take a look at, by the way, those, those are designed um, through a number of different ways to catch us up to speed. Um, sometimes uh, we don't attend every Sunday. We have other things that happen in our lives, and so we miss it. And uh, I, I wish that I could say that all of us, um, myself included, I wish I could say that every week we kind of sit down and we go, wow, it's Sunday morning, and it's 6 o'clock, and I'm up, and I'm just excited about the day. And so I'm going to pick up my Bible, and I'm going to make sure that I just don't walk in cold to the, to the sermon today. And so I know Jim's going to start in verse 17 of chapter 11. And so, no, I should probably not just start in verse 2 where he was last week, but maybe take a running start and go back all the way to 9 so that I can understand the context. I mean, anybody else do that besides Andrea? Anybody else? Do that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I get it. But do, do you see how helpful that would be? And so we recognize that. And, and, and when we talk about how we can have a, a more responsive and a more prepared experience, that's why we have those. Um, so I hope that you're paying attention and I hope that you're trying to think about, okay, this is, this is how we got here so that we can be prepared to, to move forward. And so last week in verse two, Paul said, I want to commend you in this. I, I want to say congratulations. I want you to know how proud I am that you seek to be faithful to the traditions that I have given you. And then today, he's going to start in verse 17 and says, I, I have no way to commend you in this. That's his way of saying, I want to let you know I'm disappointed in you. I want you to know that I'm not pleased with what you're doing. Uh, we usually hate that stuff, don't we? I have a good friend of mine, and he always says that when people speak truth into our lives and we get angry, you ever been angry when someone tells you something? It's usually a sign that they're speaking a deeper truth than we want to admit. Why are you so angry that I said that about you? you? You know it's true, don't you? I always think about that. I always think about those things that people might say to me that really stir something up within me. I think they're hitting a nerve. And I'm grateful, actually, to be honest with you. I'm very grateful. I'm always looking for things that, that make my faith with, in God and in Christ and in the church that makes it like genuine and real and true. I, don't, I hear what other people say about my faith. I hear that other people say, yeah, it's wishful thinking. Um, you, you, you think that way because your parents thought that way. And I want to go, yeah, well, their parents didn't. Like, I, I get it. I, I have all these, these accusations about what our faith is. And so I'm, I don't know about anybody else out there. I'm just trying to seek something that seems genuine and real and true. And I really sense it when I come against something that grates me. I won't say the wrong way, but it just it cuts into me. Makes me feel alive. And, and these texts in 1 Corinthians do that to me. Um, this, this text has confronted me for a number of years about how I've taken the Lord's Supper not fully aware of what was going to happen. Um, I've, I've been a part of a tradition that takes the Lord's Supper every week. And so literally 52 times at least a year I have eaten this meal um, since I was 12 years old. 
I thought I knew what I was doing. And, and sadly enough, not a lot of people taught me what to do. They just said, do it. And so I had to kind of try to pick it up. And I got some of it wrong. And the Bible said it right. And so that's what we're here to do this morning. And that's what God does. He says, I, I want you to know that I know the truth about you. Like, do you know that there is a God and he is a real being? Which means he has real thoughts right now about you and about me and about us. That there is a real God, not, a, not an idea about God, but a very real being that exists, not somewhere, but everywhere. And he knows us perfectly. He knows like what we do well, and, and he knows where we fall short. I think sometimes we are more impressed with the idea of God than the reality or the truth that he exists. And he just rewards those who earnestly seek him. In the book of Revelation, there's not an S on the at word, by the way. In the book of Revelation, chapters two and three, God reveals to John what he thinks about seven churches that exist in Asia Minor. Imagine that God chose seven churches in Stillwater and then wrote them letters and then had those letters shared. What would he say about us? I've often thought about that. What would he say about us? Well, if what he would say about us is like he says of the churches in, in Asia Minor, he would begin with, I have this in, I, I, first of all, I see everything that you do, and I just, I see you do this, and I just want to commend you. I want to commend you for your generosity. I want to commend you for, for just how, how caring you are. I want to commend you. And, and, and God does that to the churches. He says to the church um, um, in Smyrna, I want to thank you so much. I want to just congratulate you. I want you to know how pleased I am in terms of your ability to take on persecution and remain faithful. And then to the churches, he continues on. He says, but I hold this against you. Think about that statement. I mean, most preachers say things like, yeah, God and his grace, he would never hold anything against us. Well, the only thing that goes wrong with that idea is the Bible. Literally, I mean, I don't know what you're going to do with it. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he says this over and over again. I hold this against you. That'd be good to remember. Now, by the way, it's God holding it against us. So it's, you don't just say God holds us against you and then stop talking. You got to keep talking. God says, I hold this against you. And that's his way of saying, like, I don't commend you in this. It's God's way of saying, I'm disappointed in you in this. So many of us have painted a picture of God where he's only happy for us. He only commends us. We write songs about God with his reckless love that would only pursue us until we're all found. Eh, actually, not true. But I like the idea. It's just not true. So when we talk about these things about God, he says this, I hold this against you, and then there's the invitation. Therefore, repent. Like, change your mind. Turn to me so that I can commend you again. So the truth is, like, God loves us and he pursues us. And the truth is that in the midst of our growing up, God disciplines us and he says, I'm not pleased with this in you. I hold this against you. And then, listen, there's an invitation. Repent. And that's what we're here to do this morning. We're here to say, God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring us for us. Thank you for this amazing grace that exists. God, thank you for speaking truth to us. Thank you for not just commending me and commending me and commending me and commending me and commending me. How many of you know that you've got some issues? Anybody else out there besides me? 
How would you like it if God just said, hey, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, I just got one more cool thing to say about you. Don't you kind of just go, really? Does he not know the truth? Like, now, by the way, that, that God's easy to give up on in my books. So God says, I hold this against you. Forever? Are you telling? Repent. See the invitation? And when we repent, he opens this door of fellowship. And, and by the way, it says, and when we repent, think about this for this morning's meal. God actually says, and for those of you that open the door, I will enter in. It's not about accepting Christ. It's about accepting his discipline. It says, and I will come and I will eat with you, and you will eat with me. It's that open fellowship. So when we open up our hearts and our minds to God, when we repent, when we hear the truth about where we're not following his desire, his goal, where we're not being made and remade into the image of God for the glory of God, image of Christ for the glory of God, there's that invitation for us, that invitation to change. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're changing. So Paul begins in verse 17 by saying, like, I'm not gonna commend you in this. I'm not pleased in this. Interestingly enough, they got some of the gender distinction stuff right. They got some of the desire to follow the traditions right. And if there's a tradition that exists in the church, it's this one. Talk about traditions. This is a long, it's one of the two sacraments in the Protestant church. This and baptism, these are like big deals. These are traditions. And Paul actually says, but in the following instructions, verse 17, I do not commend you. Because, okay, there's a reason. Paul's not just arbitrarily angry. Because when you come together, is that me? Do I need to talk quieter? Okay, we'll figure it out. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Think about that. I love that statement. I'm not gonna commend you because when you come together, and you do, you come together a lot. It is not for the better, it's for the worse. That's one thing that I just have to just stop and to realize, like, why does God call us to come together? Why does God call us? That's why I'm always a little bit nervous. Um, coming to church? Do we come to church? Sure, in some sense, yeah, we do come to church. So let's not be uh, just trying to pick uh, every wor word apart. But it's more than just coming to church. It's literally being the church. So why do, we, why do we be the church? Why do we come together and why do we do this? And the answer is, listen to this, the answer is so that we can become better that we can become better. That's why the Bible teaches do not forsake the assembling of togetherness. It's not just so that pastors can have like better attendance Sundays. It's that when we begin to put other things ahead of coming together, it actually doesn't make us better. It makes us worse. That's why any, ask any group, ask any team, if you just start, stop coming, if you just stop regularly being there, try, try this, try just coming to work every other day and see what happens. See if they go, hey, can I tell you, this is working great. If, if they tell you that it's working great that you're not coming very often, you might wanna be looking for a new job. Imagine going to your kids every other dance recital. Try that. See if your daughter says to you, man, can I thank you so much for not making this into some crazy routine where you're here all the time for me. I love the fact that you're just kind of picking and choosing and you're coming to every other one. Try it with anything. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. I think Mike Gundy's there every game, I think. Right? Oh, I, just, I don't want to get into the routine of having to go all the time and make it like I ought to be there all the time. 
Really? You're the coach. So the, the design of God for us, and we know this. I mean, honestly, the, the word that just keeps coming to me when you think about church, it's family. And this is how I always treat family. Like, I get it if you can't be there, but son, it's Christmas. It's your mom's birthday. Like, what I don't get is you just being on the other side of town sitting in your house. I, that, that's the part I don't get. I get that if you're in Mexico or Poland or California, I totally get that. But we're family, right? Like, we come together, and it makes us better, which means that there's a lot of us that come regularly. And you got to ask this question, like, is it making you better? Here's one of the problems with that word, is that sometimes we, we, we think we do come to church to make us better. And so we park our car, and we come in with our families, and sadly enough, of all, we, we, we as a staff, we struggle with this. One of the saddest parts about church, that we, we're tra- always trying to figure out new ways to do it, but it seems like we come into the church building and then the family scatters and goes everywhere, right? I mean, honestly, we pray about that. We talk about that. We just say, man, how can we create more family dynamics where parents are worshiping with their kids? And if any Sunday you just want to just say, hey, um, Jim, if you wondered where I was, I was here. I was in the children's area with my kids worshiping with them. You know, that would only like, bring joy to my heart. It should make us better. Just being here. But not in an individual way. Not a, oh yeah, like I learned a whole bunch of things today and I'm gonna be a better person. See, when, when you come in to the church building and then you focus on, and this sounds noble, I'm going to become a better Christian today. I'm going to become a better follower of Jesus today. That so often we kind of reduce it to, I'm gonna learn some things about God and about me and then I'm gonna try to put them together and, and sadly enough, especially with this presumed individualistic culture, this individualized, this the Christian life is your own individual pursuit of perfection. It is about your own sanctification. So you come in by yourself or by a family that exists somewhat by itself and then you experience church individually or as a family kind of by itself. I mean, I'm not saying that you're not sweet or kind or say hi but it's more like the queen. Hi. It's not like we know the queen. And then you go on about your life. That's not for the better. Actually, that's like one of those painful reminders that something is broken. And so Paul's drawing attention to that. You guys come together. He's gonna be talking specifically about the meal, and he says, I'm just telling you, like even though you're coming, it's not making you better. Meaning, it's not making you more like Jesus. It's actually doing the opposite. He says, it's, it's getting worse. Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, a group of people, a gathering that has been called out from the world. That's kind of what we're here for. We are here because we are different than the world. The world does not want to honor Jesus Christ with their lives. They don't desire to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the one that died for us. I want to follow him. I want to bring glory to him. Um, I want the world to know of where my allegiance lies, first and foremost with Jesus Christ, and then everything kind of breaks down from there. That's what I am about. And when I come together, I come together with other devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and we sing, and we celebrate, and we study, and we ask, how is life going? And we literally live this intertwined, connected existence 
Paul goes, no, you don't. When you come together as a church, the ones who have been called out, look at what he says. I hear that there are divisions. Like, I hear, I hear that you're divided, and we'll talk about what those divisions are, but those divisions, like, are not a sign that you're the church. Literally, if, if you've been called out, then there's a difference that exists. You're not called in, you're called out, and there's a difference. That's why it's a good reminder, whatever you want to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, whatever you want to do with it, just tell me that you're getting there, understanding that fundamentally there is a difference about our belief of God and Christ and man and woman, and that you didn't just pick this up from the world. That's what I'm convicted about. So much of my beliefs are just like the world. So much of how I treat church is just like the world. And so this becomes like a religious group. This becomes like one more thing. Like some guys have membership at the country club and I've got a membership at Sunnybrook. Like some people have their little group over here and they play bunko, and, but I've got a religious, we study the Bible together. So everybody's got their thing. Some people like to quilt. Some people like to play golf. Some people like, and I like to go to church. But in the end, I treat it like every other organization. Can, can I just, there are certain things that, um, it's probably not the end of the world if you treat your bunko group like your golf club, meaning the group of people, not your golf club, but like the club of golfers that you golf with. It's, it's really not going to have like an eternal ramification. It may hurt your golf score and really help your bunko score, but it's treating those things similar doesn't have like an eternal thing. But to take the called out people of God and then to treat it like any other organization, you're playing with something that you don't understand the deepest ramifications. And Paul says, you think you're the church, but there are divisions among you. And then he says something that's kind of strange. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you. What do you mean there must be? I thought our goal was to have no divisions at all. Right? How many of you kind of heard that, right? Sure, I've, I've, I've preached sermons. There should be no divisions in the church. Well, actually, Paul says there should be some. Look at this. But here, here's what we do. We have divisions, even in this text, rich, poor, intelligent, unintelligent, this gender, this gender, this race, this race, this socioeconomic category, this socioeconomic. Those are the way the world divides things up. That's just not the way that God divides things up. But Paul says divisions should exist. Here, look at what he says here. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Huh. So the kind of division, which actually is a healthy division that exists within the church, is that there are those of us here that are here fully, that are here genuinely, and then there are those of us, let's just say, that are not. And I don't think the category is those who are genuine and those who are complete hypocrites. I don't think it's that simple. But there are those that exist, biblically speaking, there are those that exist that are mature and that are not as mature. There are those that have grown up in the faith and that are those that are growing up in the faith. And then sure, there are always those that are, that are not genuine and they're not real. And Paul is saying that when I look at the fellowship of the body, like that kind of division, that's not what I'm talking about. That is normal. Actually, I, I kind of like those divisions because I, I remember sitting in church as a little kid and, and looking at people that I could tell were so genuine in the faith and just wanting to be like them. Anybody else? 
Like, I just remember going, I want to be like him. I could tell there was something different about them than me. And it drew me in. It made me want to be a better follower of Jesus Christ. You know those people? See, those kind of divisions are beautiful. Those kind of divisions that are not artificial, um, that are not based out of like sin or separation, that aren't, uh, they're not a, a divisive separation. They're an invitational one. Do, do you want this? You do realize that there is nothing that the Apostle Paul did or could have done that could not, if it is according to God's plan, that you could not experience. You know, when you read the Bible and we have these different categories of people, you do realize the category is God and everyone else. Jesus and everyone else. And this incredible, attractional ministry that these, this, the difference between me and Paul and, and even this Paul, the, the difference can sometimes exist that makes me want to be a better follower of Jesus Christ is I look at my brother Paul and it's just so real and it's so genuine and it's so invitational. See, those kind of invitations or those kind of separations, he says, those are fine. But Paul says, here's the problem, verse 20. But when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Meaning it's, because think about it, it's the Lord's Supper, which means that we're coming in honor of something else. It's like showing up at a birthday party and going, man, nobody got me anything. Like you gotta be a really messed up person in the head to have that attitude, don't you? So to come to the Lord's Supper and be thinking about yourself is pretty messed up. You're not coming for the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I love this, I love this word. What? Seriously? Do you have houses to eat and drink in? Applied answer, yes. Or do you despise? Notice, notice this. Like this kind of attitude is not just, hey guys, come on, let's try. He asks the question, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing like that got, that got intense quickly. The way that they were eating and drinking despised the church of God and humiliated those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. To commend someone, by the way, just to commend someone in inappropriate behavior falls under condemnation from God. Be careful, commending sinful behavior. Paul goes, I'm not doing it. Here's what they were doing. Homes back then, they wouldn't have a place most likely um, during this particular part of, of the church's history to have a large group of people meet and gather like this. Synagogues, for the most part, were still very Jewish in their orientation. And although a lot of people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ from that context, but they didn't have a place to meet. So they were, um, they, were, they were left to kind of meet in homes, and so they would. And so a, a wealthy family, like the Johnson family, like Jim and Andrea, would have a house. In that house, there would be a room. And that, in that room, what we would call more of the dining room, was the place where we would eat. And it would be a room that would basically be able to kind of feed about nine, ten people. And so we would be there. And, and chances are, if we're wealthy, our schedule would be a little bit different. And so when we come together to celebrate and to hear the word preached and to do that, they had more of a meal and not just a symbolic reminder. They came together for a meal. And so Andrea invites everybody and everybody that's kind of of the same socioeconomic status and category would come back in this area. And, eat. and by the way, hey, everybody did this. 
This wasn't just the Corinthians and they were messed up. No, this was the entire Roman world. So this is where the closest people, you know, the, the in-group with the Johnsons, they're the ones that eat here. Now there's another room in the house, known as the atrium, where roughly about 30 or 40 people could come. Now by the way, hey, I'm not telling you you can't bring your own snack. Now we've got a great meal going on back there. And you, you've worked hard all day. You show up later and you didn't really have anything to bring. And you show up in this house. Now this sounds so bizarre to us because this just crosses a lot of what we would consider to be our modern uh, sensitivities. But then you would be on the outside. Everybody's enjoying things on the inside. Oh no, no, don't worry. We'll have the rest of the service later where we can all come together. But right now we're eating and drinking and enjoying ourselves. And you guys on the outside, anybody hear that curtain closing first class? Right? It, it can be the difference. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but there's a whole level at the football stadium and at the basketball. There's a whole level known as the club level. Have you heard of this? There's a club level. And they've got food there. Like not concession stands. No, they've got food. And you can go up there and you can eat whatever they have there. Like that's at the club level. Is that not awesome? Oh yeah, it doesn't end there. There's actually a sweet level, okay? And it is sweet. There, you don't go to get food, although you can. They bring the food to you. So before you go, oh, that just sounds so, I can't believe they would do that. How many of you go to OSU football games and you kind of get, yeah, I'm like down here in the end zone. It's the way I'm, I'm one of those people. You probably don't sit with Boone Pickens, anybody? You probably won't raise your hand, right? But there's these, so in the same way, first class, you ever like, you know, you fly first class, I've flown first class a couple of times and you're like, losers, who is in the back of this plane? This is sweet. So that's what's actually happening on a, on a weekly basis. Now, I, I need you to feel this. They don't even know what they're doing is messed up because this is what we do. This is how we live. Like, I, I think a lot of those Christians would say to Paul, dude, you're reading too much into it. You're so reading too much into it. We're not trying to be rude. We're, not try- we're just doing it the way everybody else does it. And Paul, ah, did, what did you just say? Did you just say you're doing it like everybody else? See, that's the problem. That's the problem. You said that you being called out hasn't changed the way you eat with everybody else. And that's the problem. Wow, so you're telling me that this faith that I have in Jesus and this desire to follow him is going to change like how I eat and drink in my own home? Are you serious? Yeah. So you're telling me, hold on a second, you're telling me that my relationship with Jesus Christ is going to fundamentally change the way I use my home. Yeah. It's gonna fundamentally change my understanding of relationships. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. That's, that's, That's crazy. Has it changed yours? There is, I believe, there is still, it's okay to be different. My wife and I are very different, especially when I was younger. We're we're becoming more similar as we get older together. But when we were younger, I was the kind of person that wanted people in our home um, 24-7. 
Literally, just like, oh yeah, I mean, we're gonna be asleep, but if you wanna still kinda hang out in the living room, that'd be fun. And, and we would have college students, Scott and Ryan, do you remember this? We would have college students over till like two in the morning, and finally Andrea would go, I gotta go to bed, and I'm thinking, okay, it's 2.30 in the morning, I gotta go to work. And it was just this crazy, crazy, crazy time, and people were always coming through. That like made me feel alive. Remember that, babe? I mean, that just made me feel alive. And Andrea felt like she should do that kind of and have an open home. And so for me, it was just natural, right? The extrovert. Andrea, sweet, kind, wonderful Andrea, just had a different makeup about her. She would go, do we really have to have people over? On a number of occasions, I have been notifying my wife as company has shown up for supper in the driveway. Hey, don't act surprised they're walking in the front door. Hey, how are you? No, Jim told me you were coming five seconds ago, right? I mean, that's kind of how all of that. So different personalities. And, and, and by the way, the, Jesus' expectation, Paul's commendation is everybody should be like Jim. No, that's not what he's saying. He really isn't. But he's saying that Jim... Like, so for example, like if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ or not a follower of Jesus Christ, we're playing games at our house. There might be different games, but they're playing games at our house. If Andrea follows Jesus or doesn't follow Jesus, then she's gonna operate in her way. This isn't God wants us to be extroverted. God wants us to have more house parties. No. It's that Jim and Andrea together need to ask how has the coming of Jesus and the example of Jesus like shaped the way we look at like the relationships in our lives and particularly at the fellowship that we are a part of? How has that fundamentally changed the way that we look at our home? And honestly, more than that, sometimes we can just use our house as an excuse. It's really like our lives our emotional bandwidth, our relational bandwidth, our schedule bandwidth. And the majority of us have kind of like do not disturb signs strategically placed in these areas of our lives. But we do occasionally have friends over. We call that hospitality. And and what I love is that the Apostle Paul is going like, I'm not gonna commend you for living as though The coming of Jesus Christ has had no effect on your relationships with those around you. I'm telling you, if you look at this room, like every other group of people that you're with, if you have that same mindset, if I have that same mindset, there is no commendation for us. God is not pleased. I hear that a lot. I love to talk about this gather piece in light because I'm kind of wired that way. I get it. I love to talk about this gather piece, and I love to sit down with a couple and say, hey, Roger Shannon, I want to talk to you guys. I want to share with you about what it means to gather and what it means to be a part of a community. And I get this all the time. I get, not, not, from, not from the counts, but I get this all the time. I get, yeah, we don't have a need for that. Um, what was that? Like, we don't have a need for that. Like, we, we looked at our schedule, we looked at our time, and we really don't have a need for, like, other people like that. We, but we, we are part of the country club, and we've got this, or, what, or whatever. We get, we're part of, we, we're really big, involved in our schools, we've got our own group of friends, and we really don't have a need for that. Okay. I don't think I asked you, do you have a need for that? I, I would even argue you have a need that you can't see in that context, but you, you, you just don't recognize a need. Do you recognize that someone else might have a need? 
Like, do you, do you recognize at all that there's anyone else in the room? Yeah, we don't operate like that. It's basically our schedule, our timing, our emotional and relational connectivity and neediness. That's kind of how we operate. Oh, okay. By the way, that's like everybody else in the world. That's like everybody else in the world. Like you need no spirit discernment to not be involved in biblical community, none. You, have, you need no spiritual discernment in order to limit the people who are in your lives or the way that you connect with those people that are on the outside, and I'm not talking society, I'm talking within the church family. You need no discernment. I don't know if the gospel has, um, has transformed you or me. I can't just ride on my personality because I'm more extrovert-minded. Jesus demands. So I love this statement. What changes all of this is the statement, do this in remembrance of me. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, plural. Do this in remembrance of me. So what we do around the table is in remembrance of him. It's not just a ritual. It's us saying, like, we're very aware of what Jesus did for us. What did he do? He left heaven and became human. That's mind-numbingly crazy to begin with. And then he became, like, in the image of a servant. And then he died on a cross to save us. Us. Not me. Us. And so when we eat and drink, that is what we are celebrating. We are doing this in remembrance of him. We're not doing this in remembrance of me. We're not doing this in remembrance of my brokenness. We're not doing even this, are you hearing me? We are not taking the Lord's Supper this morning to celebrate your individualized salvation. A lot of people do that. What are you doing? Celebrating my salvation. Really? So like there's nobody else in the room. We do this in remembrance of him do this, he says. Verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, this cup, which is the cup of atonement within the Passover meal, this cup is the new cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Remember my atoning sacrifice for all of you. Remember the, the veil being torn in two. Remember the, the, the barrier that used to exist between you and God no longer exists. Remember that the barrier between you and your brother and your sister, and none of those lo no longer exists. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Make sure that when you eat and drink, you're doing it in remembrance of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we say, hey, be really, really careful eating and drinking this. Not because it's magical, because it's more than magic. It is a representation of of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did for us and what he continues to do, like in us. So here's how I was brought up, I think. Nobody ever taught me this, but I think I learned somehow that I'm supposed to come to church and I've heard this statement that I cannot eat it in an unworthy manner and that's usually like not paying attention to that I was a bad boy this past week. 
And so I usually sit down, and I know the communion is going to come, and as I sit there, I try to think, okay, last, okay, I took it last Sunday, Monday, well, that was a bad day. Man, I made this mistake and that mistake. That was a bad day. And I try to recount all my sins. Tuesday, that was a better day. Wednesday, that was like Monday. And then the weekend, actually, surprisingly, I was good. And so I kind of go through and I recount this. And then at the very end, before I take it, I say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And I promise I'm gonna do a better job next week. That was called communion time. That was me making sure that I was not presuming upon God's grace, that I was not uh, somehow forgetting what God had done for me, and it was about me. And I got that from this text. It says right here, let a person examine himself. Verse 27, for whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, to me, I just, that meant like sinfully. Which, which by the way, I, I think there is a theological idea that if you're eating and drinking this meal and living your life like apart from God's plan for your life, I strongly recommend you don't eat or drink it. I really do. Because this is describing your union with God. And if you don't have a union with God, if you're not trying to have a union with God, if you're just literally living your life for yourself, and then you come and for some reason, either mindlessly or in some kind of neglect, eat or drink this meal, I strongly don't recommend that you do that. But this text is about something actually different. An unworthy manner, if you do this, will be guilty, of concern, be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Do not presume upon the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Look at this. So anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that's the unworthy manner in 1 Corinthians 11. If you eat or drink this morning and you are not discerning that you're part of the body of Christ, you will drink judgment upon yourself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. I believe that's spiritually described here. Spiritually, he's talking about their spiritual walk. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, meaning that God says, for this I, I do not commend you. Look at this. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The reason why God speaks that truth into our lives, the reason why you now have an opportunity to know the truth about the meal that we are experiencing and the one behind it, Jesus Christ, will actually free you in his discipline to eat and drink it well. Wow, isn't that great? Isn't that an incredible opportunity that the Apostle Paul dared to speak these words of condemnation for the Corinthian people so they could get it right? So that you and I could get it right. See, to drink it in an unworthy manner is in a way, unintentionally, what I was doing all the time growing up. Thinking somehow that like my salvation and Sunday was kind of about me. And by the way, you guys can more than glad for you to sit beside me, listen to me sing, because I like to sing loud, right? Is that what church is? Church is here for you to come and get what you need to get out of it and then go somewhere else? Oh yeah, but the good news is I treat every group like that. Oh, okay, still, but you, you treat the called out ones of God like that. Something is broken. One of my most memorable moments taking the Lord's Supper was in Ethiopia the first time we got it to go with Jake and Aaron. And it's very interesting because we know of a lot of divisions that exist within American culture between this color and that color or this gender and that gender or this socioeconomic group and that socio. And I just remember thinking, I just can't wait to get out of this because I hear in Africa everything's wonderful. 
And so we sit down and we're eating and drinking. And again, me not understanding the full weight of all of this, I remember learning from Jake and Aaron that like, this still matters a lot. And that you have within Ethiopian culture, even within what we would consider to be black, Ethiopian culture, like degrees of black. And they don't like to associate with one another. Really? Wow, so it's not just America. That's crazy. And to sit down and to eat and to drink and to realize that not only were there just Americans and Ethiopians, but they were different, like the Gumus and the Amaric and the, what's the other one again? Ormo, Ormo? Am I saying it right? Ish, okay. And, and I loved, I mean, I got to do the communion meditation that day and just describing how, like, we're all one here. Really? Yeah. Like, we're all one here. I, I, I can remember that entire time of communion as I was just overwhelmed by the bigness of the body of Christ. And that's what we were about to do. Please do not drink judgment upon yourself by thinking this meal's for you. It is. But for the record, that you is plural. That you is us. So Paul says, hey, so, when, when, so then my brothers, verse 33 when you come together, why don't you wait for one another? If anyone is hungry, eat at home. Paul goes, hey, listen, I don't mind you eating at home. I don't mind you enjoying yourself at home. If that's what you're going to do and just treat it like a meal, then treat it like a meal, right? Go out for lunch if that's what you want to do. But when you come together, or so that you, when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then Paul says, and by the way, when I come to you, I got some other things that I want to talk to you about. I just love that. There's so much that we can learn and give our lives to, and so as we have an opportunity to come around the Lord's table this morning, I pray that you do think about yourself. It's okay. But just make sure that in light of our text this morning, that you do so asking, like, God, am I aware of those around me? Am I aware of those hurting? It's not about those hurting. I mean, am I aware of those that don't really seem to care? And what can I do to help them care? And God, what part in my heart somehow fails to recognize this amazing group of people that I get to be a part of known as the church, the body of Christ, as we eat and drink the body of Christ? Let's pray. God, thank you for this time of celebration and remembrance. And Father, may we with joy eat and drink, recognizing the bigness of who you are and the purpose of what you have done. So, Father, may we, um, as your people called out to be different, may we be different. Find pleasure, Father, in what we are about to do, for we do it for you. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen.